what happened over the last really three months is just a classic example of how countries go to war. And what I mean by that is that you saw exactly the same thing happen, whether you're talking about the United States before their entry into World War I. You saw the same thing uh, before Argentina, you know, took over the Falkland Islands, right? What they would call the Malvinas, right? It's the same pattern over and over again, regardless of country, regardless of time, regardless of geography. A government has to mobilize public opinion in their favor before they take a really risky action like going to war, because it is risky. And we're seeing that risk play out for Putin right now, right? I mean, the war is not going so well. And so he's got to rely on that domestic public support that he tried to pull together before the invasion. And now he's really got to pull it together because the war is not going so well. So that's the lens I want to suggest that we all look at. It's as a, as a real signal, the same way we talk about, you know, what's a signal about what's going to happen in the market. I think we can look at a signal for what's going to happen in terms of national policy, like in Russia, by looking at the way that, in this case, Putin tries to control the narrative, particularly that domestic narrative of what's happening in the war. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talked with Ben Hunt, creator of the research firm Epsilon Theory, about the delicate topic of the war and conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Given what is taking place in Eastern Europe and the implications it has for that region and the rest of the world, we wanted to talk to Ben and get some perspective and think about the possible outcomes, risks, and worldwide changes that may occur as a result of the conflict. We also talked through some of the impact this may have on economies and markets going forward as well. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Epsilon Theory's Ben Hunt. Hi, Ben. Thank you for joining us today. Great to be here, Justin. Thank you. The reason we wanted to have you on today is to get some perspective on the war that's happening in Ukraine with Russia. Um, war should never be talked about lightly, um, but what is happening over there is to the Ukrainian people in the country is, is clear, clearly horrific, but we wanted to try to understand some of the details, I think, leading up to the conflict. And now that it's happening, what are some of the risks and how things, you know, might ultimately play out not only for Ukraine and Russia, but also the rest of the world. Um, and then at the end, this is, we do, do tend to focus mostly on investment related themes. So yeah. if we have time, um, we'll try to get to some of the possible investment and market implications. Uh, but to start, um, I thought we could, and maybe to try to set the stage here. I wanted to see if you could sort of explain to us and also our audience as to how Russia actually got to the point of invading and maybe what was their public justification for invading Ukraine? Yeah, you know, Justin, it's, 
it's been um, it's been interesting for me to to look at what's happening between Ukraine and Russia, and and, and I say that because you know for the last. 15, 20 years, I've been immersed in markets, right? I did a hedge fund manager and, you know, write Epsilon theory and all like that, as you say, with a focus on markets. But my, the first half of my professional career was studying this, right? So, you know, it's, it's crazy, but I, I got a, I got a PhD up at Harvard in international relations where my field was, they call it, you know, international security, basically you know, bombs and guns, right? My first academic papers were about Russian military arms sales into, you know, places like Middle East, basically how they were always looking for a warm water port uh, for their Navy, which is something that goes back to, to Catherine the Great and was only truly gained by Russia when they took uh, Sevastopol and the Crimea in 2014. You know, I wrote a book called Getting to War, which is about how all governments, whether they're a democracy or a monarchy or a dictatorship, whatever they are, right, they always try to mobilize public opinion before they do something risky like starting a war. So what was amazing for me, right, was that all of my research over the past 35 years, which seems crazy to talk about it, right? But all of my research over the past 35 years, whether it's around narratives and their impact on markets, and so understanding and being able to measure, you know, domestic media in, in Russia and the like, or whether it's the old work I'd done about how countries go to war, it all played out here uh, with Russia and the invasion of Ukraine. So I, I just wanted to kind of set that up. I mean, it's kind of my, my, my bona fides here. Not that I, I think that anything we're going to talk about isn't something that anyone could observe happening, but this is something that, 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 that the war itself is actually something where I've got a lot of experience and, 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 and background in analyzing. So I, I just wanted to you know, put that out there for, for, for your audience before we dig in here. Uh, but your question, right? <laughs> I mean, what happened in this most recent invasion, I'll leave aside the 2014 um, taking over of territory, which is also an invasion of sorts. Let's leave aside that. But what happened over the last really three months is just a classic example of how countries go to war. And what I mean by that is that you saw exactly the same thing happen, whether you're talking about the United States before their entry into World War I. You saw the same thing uh, before Argentina, you know, took over the Falkland Islands, right? What they would call the Malvinas, right? It's the same pattern over and over again, regardless of country, regardless of time, regardless of geography. A government has to mobilize public opinion in their favor before they take a really risky action like going to war, because it is risky. And we're seeing that risk play out for Putin right now, right? I mean, the war is not going so well. And so he's got to 
rely on that domestic public support that he tried to pull together before the invasion. And now he's really got to pull it together because the war is not going so well. So that's the lens I want to suggest that we all look at. It's as a, as a real signal, the same way we talk about, you know, what's a signal about what's going to happen in the market. I think we can look at a signal for what's going to happen in terms of national policy, like in Russia, by looking at the way that, in this case, Putin tries to control the narrative, particularly that domestic narrative of what's happening in the war. And what is the narrative that he is basically coming up with and trying to tell the Russian people? It's the same narrative that every government uses, and that is, we had no choice, and it's self-defense. That is the narrative that every government uses when they're justifying creating a story of that to, to, and I'm not saying a story is necessarily a lie, but I'm saying that that is always the effort. You're always trying to cast yourself in the position of the aggrieved party, the one who had no choice. We had no choice but to send the tanks in, right? We had no choice but to, you know, drop the bombs. Because if we didn't, then our own survival was at stake. That's, it's, it, that, that's what all governments do for, for any conflict. And that's exactly what happened with Russia and the Ukraine, right? You look at the justifications being used, right? That the purpose of the invasion, the avowed purpose of the, the invasion was demilitarization of Ukraine and, you know, denazification of Ukraine. And that's right. That's that's what you want to say to your people, right? We're doing it to be on the side of good. We're we're against the Nazis, and we're doing it out of self-defense, because otherwise, you know, they're just going to go after the ethnic Russians and the Donbas region. Uh, they're eventually going to come for us. It's all part of a grand plan by the other, in this case, NATO being the other, to destroy Russia. And in fact, that's exactly what Putin said yesterday. I don't know if you saw the speech he gave and, you know, and all the domestic media channels, is that this is what is at stake. It's defending themselves against an effort by the West to destroy Russia. That's how it's being portrayed. And that's how war is always portrayed by a government looking to fight. So do you think Putin actually believes that, or is there some other motivation here? I don't care, right? <laughs> at, at, at the end of the day, I don't care whether he believes it intrinsically himself. I suspect he probably does to a large extent, but it doesn't matter, right? It, it doesn't matter uh, whether he believes it or not. What we have to understand is that's how this is going to play out. And with that in mind, I think that's why it's so important that we, the West, NATO, chooses its actions so carefully, right? so as A, 
not to be the patsy, not to lose, <laughs> right? And 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 the the goals to to recreate the borders of the old Soviet Union. And at the same time, not to take actions that make it easier for Putin to succeed in galvanizing his own domestic public opinion. I, I go back to the Cold War, where we, again, the West, NATO, was really careful not to provide that excuse or rallying cry for a larger conflict, while at the same time being drawing very clear lines and then sticking to those lines. So when Russia sent in the tanks into, you know, Hungary in 1956, or into Czechoslovakia in 68, or into Poland in 1980, you know, there was no talk about no-fly zones and, oh goodness, we've got to, you know, arm the people. It's a different world. I'm all for providing the stingers and the javelins, the defensive systems to go into to, to Ukraine. But we won that war by taking the Cold War, by taking the long view, and by allowing the regime to be destroyed from within. And I think exactly the same thing can happen here. I think the economic sanctions are absolutely what is required to split and divide public opinion within Russia. I think that drawing that very strong line at the NATO borders is exactly what's required to say, you know, not an inch farther, but also not an inch less. And that's why I also think that doing something like a no-fly zone or a military escalation in Ukraine itself by NATO would be exactly what Putin is looking for. Because that's how he gets his people, his domestic support, not to turn on him, but to say, yeah, this really is something, it's, it's, it's our own self-survival, our own existence is at stake. Let me just go back to NATO for a second, because you sure. wrote a piece, um, and let me just read you this. You, you wrote, um, I think our current NATO expansion policy is nuts. I think it's absolutely ridiculous for the United States to have mutual defense pact with Lithuania or Montenegro or Slovenia or even Poland for that matter. Yep. In the immortal words of Henry Kissinger, when you're allied with everyone, you're allied to no one. And that's exactly what NATO has become, an alliance of everyone and no one at the same time. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that. So, so look, I, I mean, when I... There's this guy, you, you've probably seen him, you know, mention his name's John Mearsheimer. He's at the University of Chicago. So he was, he's a, he's a couple of years older than I am. Yeah, seven or eight years older than I am. So I, I, was, I remember, you know, I was starting grad school. He had just published a book. It was called Conventional Deterrence. Conventional Deterrence. Not nuclear deterrence, conventional deterrence. And it was a, is a great book. I mean, if you're in kind of the field right there, he's, he's written other stuff that I think is, say, more accessible, less in the weeds, right? But this book, Conventional Deterrence, it was a resurgence. It was a re-argument of classical realism. Not neo-realism, which is a word you hear a lot about. You know, neo-realism is the idea of, oh, we're all going to be you know, capitalist democracies, and so we're going to, you know, 
have all these free trade agreements that are abused and abused and all like that, but it's okay because, you know, we'll all get a little bit richer and some people will get a lot richer. This is not that. Classical realism is, would have been very familiar to, you know, Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War. I mean, I mean, that's what it's all about. It's, it's about trying to deal with the actual realities of military power, which is the classic line by Thucydides, and it was true, you know, in 2,500 years ago as it is today. And here's the classic line. The strong do as they will, the weak suffer as they must. I'm going to say that again because it's just, it, it, it sums up to me what is the realist and real truth about international war and conflict. The strong do as they will, the weak suffer as they must. And so realism, classical realism, is all about understanding both the, the realities of the powerful, like, like a Russia, like a United States, like a Western Europe, and understanding, though, that there are limits to that power, understanding that there is stability in deterrence, both conventional, when you've got two tank armies, you know, across a border looking at each other, and nuclear deterrence, right? There, there are two sides of the same coin, and that through this kind of strength, and understanding the, 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 the strength of the other side, you can create a long-lasting peace and then whittle away the other country from the inside, like we did in the Cold War. So this was the entire theory behind uh, containment, right? The idea that we weren't going to attack Russia, right? We were going to defend our core allies, but they were basically going to wait them out. And we did, and we won. And I think that's what we should be achieving or shooting for again today, right? And, and that the expansion of NATO after the, the collapse of the Cold War, or the, the, the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Iron Curtain, I think that was a real mistake, right? I think it was a mistake for NATO expand into the Baltics. I get why the Baltic states want to want to be in NATO. They, they're a weak state. And they, they don't want to suffer what they must. So they'd like to, you know, say, no, put us behind that NATO wall. And I get it. And I, I, I thought that was a mistake when it happened. I still think it's a mistake. But that's water under the bridge. Because what I've also written, Justin and Jack, is that, okay, whatever, you know, however we got here, the NATO lines have now been drawn. And Putin has to recognize the realism of that, right? In the same way that, look, I think it would be nuts for us to put tanks into Ukraine or combat aircraft, NATO combat aircraft into Ukraine. I also think that it's got to be, Putin's got to realize it's nuts for him to test that hard line, that bright line, of crossing into a NATO ally. So look, do, do I think it was a mistake for us to stand? Do I think that the United States, I should be clear about who I think about is we. I'm talking about, uh, you know, American strategic interest. 
I think it was a mistake for American strategic interests to expand NATO as we did, because now we have to live up to that. For NATO to mean anything, we have now to treat Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia as if they were Western Germany. And that's the reality of, 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 of today. So I am a realist. I am a classical realist. And like Mearsheimer, I think it was a real mistake to expand NATO as we did. But we did. And now we've got to play the hand we're dealt. The hand we're dealt has NATO having expanded to where it's expanded. And now we have to defend that. That's how we win this war. How far do you think Putin wants to go here? You know, there, there's some arguments that he maybe just wants to replace the current government with something more friendly to him. There's other arguments he wants to make it part of Russia. And then there's the arguments like you just referenced that he wants to go and bring the Soviet Union back together, which would require getting involved with other NATO countries. So where, where is the line for him? Where does he want to go here? There's no line, right? So, 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 so what Putin has is what's called a dominant strategy, meaning that, you know, there's, there's no, there's no, there was, at least with Ukraine, right? There, there was no situation in which invading Ukraine didn't make sense from his perspective. To create, you know, to, to, to answer your question directly, he'll take it as far as he can, right? I, I, I mean, if, if he achieves the first goal, then he'll try for the second goal. And if he achieves the second goal, he'll try for the third goal. So there's no end to, and th look, this is true for every leader in every country throughout history. You don't just stop because you're full. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you're, the, the French have got a phrase, you know, l'appétit vient en mangeant, meaning the appetite grows in the eating. <laughs> and that's true for every country when it comes to war. He'll go as far as he can go. What I'm saying is the place to draw the line in order to win this war, and by winning the war, I mean demilitarizing and deputinizing Russia. You draw the hard line at the NATO borders as they are, not an inch more, not an inch less. You can support Ukraine with defensive weapons all you like, but you must not escalate if you're NATO because that's exactly what Putin wants. That's exactly what will give him the domestic media message he needs to fight a much longer and much more ferocious war and make it much less likely that Putin can be removed. You alluded to the fact before that the war is not going as well as he planned. What do you think he underestimated here? I mean, do you think he underestimated the quality of his own military? Did he think our economic response wouldn't be as strong as it was? I mean, what do you think he miscalculated here? He miscalculated the Ukrainians. That's what he miscalculated. Right. So, so the Soviet Union, as I keep calling it the Soviet Union, Russia has been engaged on an enormous program to modernize their conventional armed forces, their strategic armed forces weapon. Strategic forces, we call it, that's nuclear weapons, right? Uh, but what they've really spent an enormous amount of money over the last decade is modernizing their conventional forces. And you saw this in the initial strategy of the war, right? The initial strategy was not from the typical Russian playbook. What's happening now is typical Russian playbook. But the first week of the invasion was the American playbook. It was absolutely the American playbook, right? You try to achieve, you know, air superiority, uh, you take out command and control. 
you want to fight a very mobile, uh, you use your armor in that sort of, of highly mobile approach. We are not trying to fight for cities. You're absolutely trying to fight and engage the other forces, find their center of gravity, do it on a mobile way, encircle them, win it through superiority and command control and communication, win it by encircling the other forces, cutting off their supplies, and you've done. It's a very fast way to win a war. It's the American playbook. And they failed. Why did they fail? They failed because the Ukrainians fought back smartly. The Ukrainians fought back bravely, right? You know, compare this to, you know, Afghanistan and Kabul, where, you, you know, <laughs> you know, what's his name, um, you know, takes his helicopters and his, you know, goal and, you know, leaves the country before a shot is fired you know, in, in, in Kabul, you know, they're, they're defending every inch. So that's, that's number one. The other thing that's changed, and you can better believe that, you know, American military personnel are looking at this too, that the age of the tank is over. The age of the tank is over, man. Right? And, and not from just having air superiority like we did in you know, both Desert Storm and then the, the, you know, the original Persian Gulf War, right? Not just from having air superiority where you're just, you know, flying your A-10s or whatever down and just knocking the, 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 the tanks out. They're getting knocked out from the, 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 the handheld weapons. It's, it's. It's very, it, it, it reminds me kind of, you, you see situations where this happened, right? Where, you know, used to be battleships were the, the big thing in any sort of naval combat. How many battleships have you got? You know, if you got, a, you got more battleships, you got bigger battleships, you're going to win. And World War II put the, put the end to that, right? It's, it's, not, it's not battleships, it's, it's, it's aircraft carriers. What we're seeing today is another big shift where we're going back to the, going back to, we're, we're seeing the end of armor tanks as being kind of the, the big weapon for your conventional attacks. They're, 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 they're just not being useful. Did you guys see that article in the journal yesterday about that little town? Yes, I did. Right, a, a very key amazing. strategic town in the south south of Ukraine, yeah. where, you know, the the Russians had forty five tanks, and you know, thirty three of them are kind of hulking ruins right now, and the Ukrainians they had they had no tanks, they they had the the shoulder fired uh, rocket propelled grenades, and they had artillery fire, right? so that's the other big thing. Artillery is still the killer, and and so we're we're going back to the long slog of conventional warfare, where I think it's going to be harder for anyone, including the United States, if it, you know, is everyone exercise its playbook again, to do these kind of like, you know, big armored columns that come swooping in and, 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 and win the war in, in, you know, a couple of days. I think that's all over. 
So I think, look, so, so you asked me what, what, did, what, did, what did Putin get wrong? He got the Ukrainians wrong. Uh, even in areas where you've got, most people are, you know, Russian speakers, he's, they're, they're, they're fighting him. They're absolutely fighting him. And he got the, the, the whole notion of how you can wage a, uh, you know, armored warfare today, conventional warfare wrong. One of, just one quick point on that, on that journal article, speaking of fighting smartly, one of the things that they were saying was they had these volunteers that obviously stepped up to help in the, in the fighting. And, um, they gave the example of, they had the, the Russian tanks out in the field and there's some app where like just townspeople were sending the coordinates for the, the, the shells to come in to hit the tank. So you had just through you know, a cell phone and the use of an app, you had some guy from the town telling, you know, the soldiers where to, where to place the shells. And that seemed to do some damage. So I don't know, that was just one thing that I was, that Wall Street Journal. It's crazy, right? Out. It's yeah. amazing, right? It's, it, it, it's, 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 it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I mean, you've always had spotters for artillery, right? And that was, you know, it's a really risky, really dangerous job. Um, and you've got to have the, the, communications equipment, which is, you know, some battle hardened, you know, we've all seen the movies, right? Where, you know, saving private Ryan, you've got the, mm. the big, you know, backpack of a radio thing. And those days are gone. It's just a guy with a smartphone, <laughs> <laughs> right? Calling in artillery strikes. It's, it, it just changes the nature of these sort of attacks forever which is exactly why I don't want to give Putin the domestic strength he needs to escalate this into using strategic weapons, nuclear weapons. You know, and, and unless, and look, that's my big fear, guys. My big fear is that both Ukraine and Russia want NATO to get involved in the war they both do. Obviously, I mean, I get it. I get why Zelensky and, and the Ukrainians want NATO to do a no-fly zone and, you know, bring in the tanks, bring in the Polish MiGs, whatever. I get it. I get why they want to do it. But what I, I think is so important to understand is that's exactly what Putin wants, too. Because you can excuse the war being bogged down, if you go back and say, hey, we're not just fighting these Ukrainians, we're fighting NATO. And that's what he's trying to say anyway. I get that. But if you give him the obvious answer of, oh, here are, you know, 10 MiGs being brought into the country, being flown into the country, that's the one truth that will give the cover for a hundred lies. That's the one truth that Putin will magnify to bring his entire country onto a war footing where he can justify anything, including nuclear weapons. It's what he wants. He wants that ability to escalate if he needs to. Uh, and it's what we should not give him because I think it makes his position much stronger, not weaker. Picking up on that idea of how far NATO can go militarily, you wrote a great article called Tough Guys where you were referring mm -hmm. to, I think Joe Manchin was in there and it seems like a lot of the politicians are sort of dialing it up now about the no fly zone and getting more aggressive about the things we should do. And you already talked about why those are bad ideas, but I'm wondering sort of where we draw the line. So it seems like the next thing we're doing is we're gonna send in the drones 
Um, you know, where do we kind of draw the line in terms of where we have to stop and not risk taking things too far? So I think that anything that can be used as an, as an obvious photo op, you stop there, right? So you, it, and, and typically what that means as far as a, you know, photo op means is something that's big and has offensive capabilities. And drones, you know, it depends on the, there, there are lots of different types of drones and the like. Um, but if we're looking at those to kind of do the kind of video game war of, you know, here's a drone bombing of a, you know, Soviet tank column, uh, that's problematic. It's really problematic. It, 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 look, I keep talking about Russian domestic public opinion. It's obviously we got to, you know, our leaders are dealing with our domestic public opinion too. And that's why, frankly, I'm, I'm not, I don't feel great about our ability to stay out of an escalated military conflict in Ukraine. Because just as Ukraine wants us to get involved, just as Russia wants us to escalate also, I also think CNN wants us to escalate. I also think Fox wants us to escalate. Right? I, I think, and you get it, right? I mean, I mean, of course they do. Right? I, it, because it's, it's, and I get it, right? I, I, I get the reason why you would want to punch Putin hard in the nose in Ukraine. And what I'm saying is that that makes it a lot harder for us to achieve our war goals. And this is a war. We are fighting it on the battlefields, though, where I think we have an enormous advantage, right? We're fighting it on the economic battlefield. We're fighting it on the narrative battlefield. We're not going to be patsies. We'll fight it on a military battlefield that's really good for us, which is if you cross one of those NATO borders. I mean, there's, I mean, if, if we think Putin's having a hard time, you know, in Ukraine, you, you know, that it, it, it's 10x. It's impossible for me to see how, you know, you could do anything on even these extended NATO borders effectively. The only thing you can do effectively is to provoke us to get involved in Ukraine. And that's how Putin, I think, stays in power. But if you're an, if you're an American president, are you able to stay in power by not getting involved? And it's tough because I think you've got, you've got a lot of, I'll call them political entrepreneurs who are very happy to see an escalation, uh, particularly if it's being opposed by, you know, the other guy, the guys in power. I want to ask you, uh, you, you referenced the second front we're fighting this on, which is the economic front. And I just wanted to ask you if you could give us a general overview. I mean, it seems like we've done some pretty strong things on the economic front, but what is your evaluation of the economic response? And do you, do you think there's anything else that should be being done beyond what's been done already? I think the economic response was terrible at first. I mean, I, I, I wrote a lot about this where I thought it was absolutely for show, right? The, the initial sanctions, there was a, wouldn't go into effect for 30 days, right? 30 days. There were exemptions for derivative contracts and unwinding 
the positions of, you know, the oligarchs who are being sanctioned. It was, it was sanctioned theater. It wasn't real sanction. And I, and I think a lot of people got upset about that. And I think it made a difference. And I think what made a difference was then sanctioning the central bank reserves that were held outside of Russia, uh, expanding the sanctions to include actual, you know, swift messaging, right? And that had an enormous impact on the ruble, and it has an enormous impact on, on, on their economy. You follow that up with real sanctions, real energy sanctions on Russia, and yeah, I think these are really effective. But you've, we, we, we've got to, the, the natural thing, which is to have the sanctions devolve back into sanction theater. Uh, and instead, we have to think about this as being the battlefield we're fighting a war on. And that, look, that has a lot of, of, of I'll say, um, ramifications for markets. The first one being is that these sanctions don't come off until we've achieved our war goals, which is the demilitarization and de-Putinizing of Russia. Right? So, so people thinking, well, you know, we can negotiate a ceasefire and then the sanctions come off. No, that's, that's, I don't think that's the, the realist approach here at all. The realist approach here is to think of this as a war and then to think about, well, how do, what do we mean by winning the war? And what do we mean then by how best to achieve those war goals? So I'm a realist. I think we're at war. I think our war goals should be demilitarizing and deputinizing Russia. And I think the best way to achieve those goals are by fighting them on the economic front and by fighting them on the narrative front so that the Russian people get divided, so that Putin is faced with domestic upheavals. And I think that's what ends up winning the war for us, just like it did the Cold War. How, how worried are you about Putin sort of getting boxed in here. Um, you know, it seems like, I mean, there's ongoing negotiations right now, but it seems like, you know, what he wants is not what they're going to be willing to give. And, you know, as this thing goes worse and worse, I mean, what are the concerns about him doing something really bad or, or taking this to a really, you know, a, a level where it really escalates? I'll go back to that old phrase, the strong do as they will, the weak suffer what they must. What we have to create is a weakness for Putin. That weakness can only come domestically. It's not something that we can impose from outside, right? We can't go take Putin out, right? As much as Lindsey Graham thinks we can, right? We can't, right? And similarly, we can't go invade Russia, right? And we should not, because both of those actions that I just described, or an effort at those actions, that will result in a big nuclear war. What we have to do is we have to change Putin's position from being the strong, where he can do what he will, and turn him into the weak, where he must suffer what he must. And what I think he must suffer is being removed from power, either gracefully to retire or not so gracefully. But that's only going to come from other powerful interests within Russia. It is not going to be imposed from within. So 
I don't think there's any real negotiation to be done internationally with Putin. I don't know why you'd have a talk with, with Putin at all, right? You say, here are our lines. It's NATO. We're going to continue to support Ukraine with defensive, non-offensive, non-photo op weapons and information, everything we can give them. And uh, you made your choice and now you're going to live with it. And what that means to live with it is his, that his position at home deteriorates and deteriorates fast. And that's what we're playing for, I think. So effectively, our, our plan here needs to be to wait him out. You know, as, as we sort of win on the economic front and we win on the narrative front, eventually that gets to him, right? Is that sort of the way Absolutely. to look at it? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, when, when your opponent is, you know, there are lots of expressions, right? When, you're, when your opponent's, you know, you know, hanging themselves or digging their own grave or falling on their face, don't stop him. <laughs> you know, let, you know, now, now I, I understand why you'd want to intervene, right? Because we're going to continue to get images of maternity hospitals being bombed. That's not going to stop. And it's not going to stop because Ukraine wants us to get in the war. They want to show us pictures of maternity hospitals being bombed. And Russia wants to show us pictures of maternity hospitals being bombed. I am convinced that Russia is doing so much of what they're doing to try to provoke a NATO military response. And what I'm saying is we can't take that bait. We cannot take that bait. We have to do everything we can to protect it, but then the weak have to suffer what they must. And the alternative, I know that's easy for me to say because I'm living in one of the strong countries. I know that's easy to say. But it's been true for as long as humans have been fighting. And we can't wish that away. We can't. We can only make the situation worse by falling for the bait. Ben, do you think there is a chance that the military becomes so demoralized that, you know, in the field, um, they're starting, there seem to be cracks that are already starting to show. I mean, you see, I think there's like, you know, four top generals have been killed. You have reports of Russians just getting out of their tank and walking into the woods. But I mean, do you think the cracks could sort of start there and then work their way over into Russia? It, 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 you know, of, of course, that news wouldn't get back into Russia, probably. But um, I mean, maybe no, that's no, where. No, the... no, 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 Justin, the news is already in Russia mm. because the news is with every Russian general. Mm. Right? <laughs> you know, every and and not just the general, every colonel, every may. I mean, I, I mean, the Russian military knows what's going on. And when I say that that the that the way we achieve our war goals demilitarizing and deputinizing Russia has to come from powerful Russian interest inside Russia. The military is absolutely one of those. The military is absolutely is one of those. The intelligence agencies are another source of power. I mean, and they certainly know what the hell's going on. And the oligarchs, you know, the economic, the, the, the rich guys, they're another one. Those are the sources of power. And, and that's where change is going to come from. Do they know what's going on? Yeah, they know what's going on. They absolutely know what's going on. And you say, can that make a difference? Absolutely, that'll make a difference. To um, maybe get into a little of the investment-related stuff, but um, actually, before we before we go there, just one question on 
Uh, and we're kind of moving a little bit away, but it, it plays into this. And do you think um, we as a country and countries will sort of start to deglobalize here, given what's happened with the pandemic, what's going on with Ukraine and Russia? Um, do you think like a, a, a continued shift towards deglobalization is inevitable? It's, it's not just inevitable, Justin, but it's it's going forward in big quantum leaps. And this is what I mean about the the sanctions. If if you believe, as I do, that we are in fact now fighting a war with Russia, then the economic sanctions are not over here, you know, in market. They are front and center in a weapon of war. And if you're fighting that war and you're fighting it effectively, then those weapons are used to prosecute the war, not because it's going to make the S&P go up, you know, 100 bips or down 100 bips. There's bigger fish to fry here. So I don't see the sanctions being lifted or ameliorated anytime soon. Not until Russia is demilitarized and deputinized, which could take years. Could take months, it could take years. But but that's the time frame we're on here. And in the meantime, it's not that the West is wrestling with the notion of a temporary you know, interruption of trade and commerce with Russia. The question is now, how do we completely disengage from Russia? Right? What we're doing, and I think it's absolutely the right strategy, is to close the Russian economy, right? Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. You want the old borders of the Soviet Union? You want to shoot for that? Fine. You get the old closed economy of the Soviet Union, right? There's your prize. You know, enjoy that. And what that is, is a return to like, you know, the freaking 1970s when, you know, <laughs> there was no modern Russian state air carrier, right? There was no, you were, you were, you were smuggling, you know, blue jeans in because they got a great price on the, on the, on the black market. That's the world we're talking about, about going back to. And so it's not just in the U.S., but I think about Germany, how Germany is now going to be forced to disengage from Russia. Man, that's not an easy thing, but it's absolutely what's going to happen. So does this revert? Does globalization continue to reverse? Oh, it doesn't just continue. I've, I've, I've globalization is like inflation and deflation, these are barges, right? These are barges that will go down that river of history for decades. And in the last year, we started seeing it with the uh, China, quote unquote, trade war, China tariffs. That barge of globalization came to a halt and it started to kind of moseying back the other direction. With this war, we've just put some, you know, some gigantic motors on the back of that barge. And that globalization, that deglobalization barge is now going full steam, full speed ahead, back up the river from whence it came, mm. which obviously has enormous implications for every neoliberal, neorealist enterprise on earth. Every effort to do, oh, we're going to have global supply chains. Man, you're rethinking that right now. Yeah, 
I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting to, to kind of, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to GM's, you know, next uh, conference call. I do think they're talking a lot less about selling cars in China and a lot more about their, 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 their EVs, right? Mm. I mean, this, this is where the, not just the puck is going. This is where the barge of global economics is going. It is going in the opposite direction of where it's gone for the last 30, 40 years. That's true around inflation. That's true around globalization and just in time and business practices. It's all going back the way, the way, way it was. I mean, that seems like that's going to have some pretty big invest investment or investor implications sort of as we look out over the next, you know, decade plus, um, with that shift happening. Lower multiple, Justin, that's what it is. Mm. It's a lower multiple on everything. It's a, it's a higher cost of capital and it's a lower multiple, particularly the farther out in the future you're looking. So all these infinite duration, you know, story stocks. And we're already seeing it here, right? I mean, I made up a chart of the, you know, all the 2021 IPOs. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just, in, and not just down, you know, 10, 20%, but 60, 70%. And that's after the last couple of days, which has been right. you know, fantastic. But, you know, we're, we're, it's, it's, it's multiple compression on everything and particularly on things that require a long duration to tell a story. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's not pretty at all. You, you referenced all of these long duration companies and, you know, one of the lessons I should have learned from you a long time before I actually did is years ago, we sort of entered into a period where fundamentals really weren't mattering in the market. And, you know, those of us that are right. value guys, were sort of analyzing things that nobody really cared about. And I'm wondering, you could make an argument that in a new world with higher rates, with higher inflation, you could make an argument that companies that are able to generate cash flows may do better and fundamentals may matter a little bit more again. And I'm wondering, do you think I have that right? Or do you, do you think we're still going to be in this world where maybe fundamentals matter less? Uh, I don't think we can, we can uh, unring the bell of social media and narrative creation and the way that that ultimately drives things. But I think what you're going to see, Jack, to your point, is that the story of value is absolutely going to come back into vogue. Now, whether it's, I'll call it real value or not, right? It is, it's always going to be in the eye of, behold, of the beholder. Uh, but does, does the real, I think, matter more? I sure hope so. <laughs> I sure hope so. Uh, but, you know, there'll always be, there are two great languages in investing. There's the language of value, and then there's the language of growth. And they use different words. They, you know, they, it's like a religion, right? So you either, you believe, you're a believer in one of these great religions of investing, or you're a believer in the other great religion. And both of them use their language, and I think you can kind of evaluate which language is, you know, in the ascendancy and which is in the decline. So it's not that any of this stuff ever goes away, and it's not that value didn't matter. It's that the language of value wasn't in favor. Now, do I think that the language of value can come back in favor when you've got wars brewing and it's harder 
to use the language of growth? Yeah, I do. But I also think that, uh, you know, it's not going to stop people from using the language of growth and finding ways to try to make a better story for companies that rely on a higher multiple. That's what multiple is, Jack. It's a story, right? Whether you're talking about what multiple do I put on this cyclical, you know, because, you know, it's got, you know, where we are in the business cycle or whether it's what multiple we're going to put on Tesla, right? Or what multiple we're going to put on, you know, a retailer. It's all a story. And I'm just saying that it's going to be harder to tell those stories, whether we're going to tell a story about the future. And I think it's going to be a little bit easier to tell the stories about uh, multiple when it comes to value, quote unquote, value companies. I think your job just got a little bit easier. You still got to tell a good story, but I think your job's got a little bit easier. We'll have to, we'll have to work on our storytelling skills. Absolutely. Everybody um, does. Before I hand it back to Justin for the last question, I just wanted to ask you about the Fed quick, because one of the things yeah. I learned from you, I was listening to a podcast you did with Phil Bach. It was a long time ago. It was way before the pandemic. And, you know, one of the things you said on that podcast is basically any deflationary shock could be thrown at the market and the, the government slash Fed is going to deal with it. And that was before the pandemic happened. And obviously you were proven completely correct because they threw everything at the pandemic and that deflationary shock was dealt with very quickly. But I'm, wor I'm worried about the other side of it. And I'm wondering, you know, sure. what are the Fed's tools that they have for inflation without causing major problems for both the economy and the market? Because at least in the short term, you know, what they did to deal with that deflationary shock didn't really have any major negative implications, but it seems like what they have to deal with now may have some negative implications. So I'm wondering, sort of what you think about where the Fed is right now and how they can deal with this inflation without having problems for the economy and the market. So they have no tools, right? To, to, your, to, your, to your point, to your, to your point, what, what they've built is they built this Maginot line against deflationary shocks. You know, they, they're fighting the last war, which is what always happens. And, you know, what happened to the Maginot line? You know, the Russians went around it. They put the tanks through the Ardennes. You know, what we have now, all of our, the tools in our toolkit, monetary policy toolkit, they're all designed for fighting deflationary shocks, all of it. So your, your point's a very good one. The only tool they've got is their words. The only tool they've got is their words. And they're really good with that toolkit. They're, they're really good with it, and they're the only game in town. So what I mean by that is, we will continue, and this is something we talked about in kind of our, in our, our notes as well. We're now, right now, we're in what's called a, a Fed put narrative. And that is the, the market, everyone knows that everyone knows the Fed's got our back. It's very positive for markets. What I mean by, I listened to, to Powell's presser yesterday. I'm sure you guys did too. And I thought it was pretty terrible. You know, I thought the body language was bad. I thought he's hemming and hawing. I thought the words he was saying, well, we've got seven meetings. Maybe we'll have seven hikes. I, I thought that was really market negative. What I knew from what we had been writing about and publishing about narrative is he could have hemmed and hawed a thousand percent more. It didn't matter. Anything he said was going to be interpreted by the market in a very market supportive way. And that's why as soon as, you know, as soon as the conference is over, you know what the quote unquote word of the day was on CNBC? Soothing. <laughs> Soothing. I can't make it up. You can't make it up. Right? 
But I knew, but we knew this was going to happen, right? Because you look at the language that's being used around central banks. It started with the Russian invasion when missionaries like Muhammad El Arian and everybody comes up and says, oh, you know, the Fed's got to be careful now. They've got to, you know, they got to step back from, you know, all these hikes and the like. And everybody said, yeah, 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 that's what the Fed's got to do. That's what the Fed's got to do. And so that's how anything the Fed said yesterday was going to be perceived as a market positive move. So the Fed will continue to use its narrative skills and tools to try to fight another day, right? Just They're just going to be doing this month by month and trying to avoid a disaster. Because at the end of the day, to your point, Jack, all they've got is their words, right? What, 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 is, what, is, what, is, what does 10 hikes mean when inflation is whatever, you know, 9%? <laughs> it's right. It's nothing. Right, it's a little dumble full of water at a, at a, at a raging fire, and that's what we've got. We've got embedded wage price inflation. So, in the in the in the medium term, though, as a trader, Jack, I don't know what you do with that. The fact that they have no tools, because they've got their words and they've got their narrative, and on any kind of shorter or even medium time horizon. Like we're seeing the last couple of days, and that's all you need. Ben, we have a standard closing question we didn't get to ask you uh, the first time you were on with us. So we wanted to ask you today, but you can take this wherever you want to go. If you want to relate it to um, Ukraine and Russia, if you want to relate it to what the actual question is, um, it's totally fine. So just go wherever you want to go with it. So the question is, based on your experience in the markets and the research that you've done, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? So, yeah, I've, I've, I've thought about this a lot, actually, since our last talk, because I, I figured you were going to ask me this. And the, 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 the one, to boil it all down to one thing, it's to understand that markets are a political utility and that, you know, there's this old story that, you know, traveler comes in this old West town and he sees these guys playing poker and he sees that the dealer is obviously cheating. And he talks to one of the players later and says, well, what, what are you, what are you doing? You know, the guy's cheating. And the guy says, yeah, I know, but it's the only game in town. Right. The stock market, the public market, it's not the only game in town that we should be trying to connect our investments with the real, not the casino, not the stories that are told to us. We can play with it, right? And I think you can, as you're investing in market, if you're going to be an investor, you're looking just to harvest the political utility nature of markets. You're just trying to harvest the beta. But if you're trying to find alpha, you're trying to make an investment, you want to make money, you find something that's real, that's close to you, and where you're not being told a story. That's the, that, that's the advice I've got. It, you, know, you know what it's actually like? It's, it's like the old Peter Lynch. You remember Peter Lynch, right? Where he always said, you know, what do we, what, what do, we do at, you know, Magellan? Oh, we, you know, 
we, we, we really invest in, in, in real, in real companies. And I don't know, maybe that was possible for Peter Lynch, you know, back in, I don't know, 1978. I don't know, maybe that was possible for him. It's not possible today, not in public markets. You want something real, you want to invest, invest in your own company, your own self, you know, invest in something that you can understand. And that doesn't exist in public markets today. I'm not saying get out. You use them for their political utility nature. You harvest the beta. You stick it in a drawer and you forget about it. But you want to be an investor. You want to do research. You want to, you want to try to make alpha. It's got to be in something real. It's got to be something close to you. I don't think you can find that in public markets today. That's the one thing I'd, I'd put, try to put across. That's great. Um, thank you again so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. We've learned a lot from this. Um, if people want to find out more about you and about Epsilon Theory, where can they go? I'm, I'm just Epsilon Theory everywhere, right? So it's, it's Twitter, at Epsilon Theory. It's EpsilonTheory.com. Uh, we write a lot of stuff. Most of it is free. So uh, come on over and check it out. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Jack. Anytime. Hey, guys, this is Justin. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarbonell. If you found this discussion interesting, please like us on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.